0: Thanks for joining us on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book Modern Monopolies. And so, of course, the first topic for us today is to talk about this Plaid acquisition. I just got back from the JP Morgan uh, Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. That's why we, weren't, we didn't cover this, what, I guess two days ago, three days ago when this broke. Yep. Um, but uh, there's been a lot of chatter about it. And, you know, I'd say...
1: Did they pay too much? Was it Why did they buy them? All that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And so let's first, let's just kind of break down what Plaid is, right? So Plaid, are think of them as the pipes to enable, if you're a fintech startup, if you want to build an app, a piece of software that um relies upon getting access to the bank records bank information uh do transactions in and out of people's banks these are the pipes that enable all of that to happen so venmo if uh if you send someone a venmo and then they want to transfer it to their bank account venmo is using plaid to integrate into a lot of the bank's to enable that right. that money to flow. Uh, the same way that, for example, Stripe is used by a lot of app
1: developers and websites to handle card payments. Uh, basically, Plaid is used by a lot of these same kind of same folks to handle getting access to bank information and make accounts. It's similar.
0: Mm-hmm. So I actually interviewed uh, the two co-founders of Plaid, Will and Zach. When was this? Uh, yeah, June 2017. So two and a half years ago. And said, you know, Plaid is powering the future of banking and finance using its powerful APIs. Plaid is bridging financial institutions and data to innovative technology, making finance work faster and better. Um, And what I was pushing the two founders on on this was, well, you guys are a linear SaaS tool. The way Plaid makes money is, let's say you're Venmo, let's say you're these apps that are integrating into Plaid, you will pay a fee to plaid to be able to use the software um but it's not a platform in the sense that they have a two-sided network effect right if you kind of think about who the consumer is um i you could kind of say it's the bank but it's not really the bank right technically the consumer is me sending nick money through venmo but plaid is powering the pipes for Nick to send that money back to his bank account. Right. Um, the consumers that they speak about in their deck where they say they have 200 million, uh, consumers. Where is this? Yeah. Here accounts they're referencing accounts linked to plaid. So, if we're using an app that then links to Plaid or is using Plaid to link to my bank account, they count that as a user. So it's it's a degree of separation between an actual end consumer and the then apps right. that are their, built on top of their technology. Their
1: customers that they sell to, the ones that pay them, are these apps and uh, you know, websites and things that use
0: Plaid to connect
1: into bank accounts.
0: Right. And... Uh, You you can see how they break this down. Financial they've integrated with over eleven thousand financial institutions. Here's the benefit to developers. So there might be now maybe a small fee for the financial institution, but I think where they're really making most of their money is on the developers. Now, how much money are they making to be bought for five point three billion dollars? The estimates that I saw was that they're making about one hundred fifty million dollars in revenue in twenty nineteen. So they've raised about. Three hundred million yeah three hundred million dollars one hundred fifty million dollars in revenue that's over a thirty five x revenue multiple that's expensive yes especially not for a platform company for a saAS company that's very expensive for a saAS company that's great money now is that a bad acquisition you know this this slide i th- I thought was pretty interesting where they show plaid uh, penetration that's the orange and then you can see basically there's not much orange and there's a lot of gray that means they have a lot of growth in front of them, right? So could they keep up this growth and 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 keep growing at a at a breakneck speed? I think I think they may be two or 3x revenue year over year. Um so that's great. They have a lot of growth. Now Visa buys them. Let's talk about uh the origin story of of Visa. Um our friend Ben Thompson was talking a little bit about this. Um, but what's your, what, what's, was give us a little dosage of knowledge here, Nick. Well, Visa back in the day, I think was actually called
1: like Bank AmeriCard. Uh, and then only later did it become called Visa. But basically how they started was uh, they, this is back when there were a few uh, card systems, basically that were, that a lot of them were integrated and run by the big retailers, but if I'm a small retailer, I basically have a, you know, one or two people in the back of my shop that handle small accounts that, you know, they owe me 14 bucks or whatever. I extend credit to customers. And it was kind of a nightmare to deal with. What they did is they basically just mailed. So back then you know, they mailed physical cards to 60,000 people in this town of Fresno, California, where they started. And they basically went to these businesses and said, look, we're going to do this. Everyone's going to have a card. Uh, will you join? And a lot of these businesses, the big ones that had their own cards are like, well, get out of here. I do this. You're, you're basically infringing on my my value prop and territory. Uh, but a lot of the small ones were like, please, please do this. Let me get in and, and participate in this. And there was some skepticism, like, why would you join if you're going to pay? I think it was 6% was the fee back then. And it's because of all this back office cost that basically you're ripping out. I no longer have to deal with managing credit in $12, 14 amounts for all of my customers because now you're gonna handle all this for me. And it's easy to forget that today, uh, when you think of why the credit card companies big money it's because they take a lot of the complexity out of managing credit as a small business. I don't have to worry about it anymore. All I have to do is sign up and accept this card. Um, so th- there's a lot of value there. And I think the interesting there, we talk a lot about how you build networks on the show and Visa works with a lot of big banks and financial institutions today, but they started with this very much bottom up approach Let's start with these small merchants where we can deliver the most value that don't have the ability to handle credit effectively. And uh, even with a relatively small network, we can deliver a ton of value
0: to these folks. And what was the part of it where there was, you know, state between interstate bank transfers that they were also helping? Like, were they actually started as a nonprofit or was that MasterCard? They they were bo- both Visa and
1: MasterCard were started basically uh, by consortiums of banks, because back then, I think the way banking charters worked, you could only work in particular states. Uh, so the you don't have the massive national conglomerates that you did today that came with deregulation much later so they basically started those consortiums of banks that would own you know, particular territories yep. so that when you use the card uh, the card network wouldn't just be in like originally you know, like one town or one state you could use it as you traveled basically by by each bank
0: uh, owning you know part of this network and acquiring now, merchants now and that's customers. the true origin story of visa ms card i think the first story was the origin story of them having a credit card. Right. The true origin story of the organization of Bank AmeriCard, or whatever it was called, is that they were Visa and MasterCard were nonprofits created by a consortium of banks, right. primarily to get around interstate. so I'm a bank, I want to transfer money from one state to another. How could I bring all the, this connectivity together? Right. And that is where they got the bank to bank connectivity right because they they were competing with uh amexes
1: and diners club and these kind of national that owned it themselves and they went end to end like issuing the credit and the banks individual banks couldn't do that because they couldn't get this national reach so they basically banded together to compete against the the what was then the big guys uh to create this network
0: so that you know what i'm willing to bet that's probably the oldest example of a traditional business spinning out a platform business. That that's probably it. It's Visa and Mastercard. Uh, however many, how many decades ago that was. Um and uh and they've done phenomenally well. I think Visa's about a half a billion dollars in market cap. And um their stock price has gone up over 200%. Yeah, they're at 430 billion dollars in market cap. They've gone up over 200%, I think just in the past uh, three years, yep. And um, they're doing very, very well for themselves. Al Kelly's the CEO. Met him at a few conferences. Pretty sharp guy. And um, I think this acquisition was a good one, even though they paid a phenomenal price. Let me give another example. A buddy of mine runs an MCA business. MCA just stands for Merchant Merchant Cash Advance. It's a fancy name. So they don't get sued by the government for um, like usury charges because they charge such high interest. It's basically like payday loans for businesses. Right. And, um, you know, in like he won't like this, but, you know, a few decades ago, they'd probably be called loan sharks. But these are more sophisticated loan sharks. Sorry, friend. And who um, gets their money from hedge funds. So it's sophisticated money. In, in, and they do actually pretty good sized loans. but what he was telling me is that every single MCA business, which there's a lot of there's a lot of money in the MCA uh, lending markets or small businesses that can't get credit uh, or short-term loans from big banks and the banks aren't that good at lending, they're very stingy. we've covered this many times. Um, every single one of them, is built on top of Plaid. Yeah. And what do they do when they're built on top of Plaid? So now they've built software that, let's say I'm a small business, I want to loan, go to my buddy. And uh, then they pull all your bank records through Plaid, it's some integration, they have software that integrates, boom, you give them all your bank records. Now they can scan through in the software will then scan through, here are all the types of transactions. What were your daily averages? Did you ever go negative? What are, you know, who's pulling from your account and analyze the activity on your account. Then let's say they give you the loan. They will have daily pulls come out of your account for that amount. And all of that is facilitated by Plaid, right? So they're giving you access to the information. They're giving you controls. Um, different types of controls that you can have on the account when you have this kind of lender relationship. So it's very interesting. And so pretty much you were saying this whole market is powered by Plaid. They're not the only one. There are other
1: companies that do this, like uh, Investnet, which owns Yodely, which is similar. But Plaid is by far the the leading one in the US, certainly, uh, in this market. I think
0: Yodely tends to be more active internationally. Uh, but, so, but Yodely yeah, is... Big. Well so let's get to that. So Yodli is owned by a company called Investnet. Um when did they acquire Yodely? Um, I don't know. Oh, and BlackRock has a BlackRock has put a good chunk of money into um Investnet. Um but anyway, <clears throat> so they own Yodli. Investnet's a public company. Investnet is worth about three point nine billion dollars. Uh I bought some stock in InvestNet and the off chance that MasterCard wants to go buy them. And, um, you know, this to me would be the natural play if someone else wanted to go and, uh, and, and kind of hedge what, right. what, uh, what Platt is doing and, and go after this. But, you know, I guess the in, in, in Visa's shareholder presentation about why they bought this, they said, hey, look, we can help them expand their network. We can help them accelerate their sales cycle. They have relationships. The way Visa's network works is they don't
1: have direct relationships with and, and consumers. They have relationships with banks. Mm-hmm. So they have the bank relationships. So basically the banks issue cards to customers uh, that will be very, very, very valuable to Plaid. And from Visa's point of view, they want to get into what are called non-card payments, which basically means you're not using a credit card. Mm-hmm. They have, along with MasterCard, basically a pretty unassailable network in card payments. But there's these uh, huge volume of B2B payments. You're talking trillions of dollars that don't happen with credit cards. And both uh, both Mastercard and Visa have been investing heavily in trying to get more into these non-card payments, particularly in B2B uh, account-to-account payments, that kind of stuff. And this fits very squarely within that area of activity. Yep.
0: Now I wonder. I wonder. Do you think? So the way that Visa that that the main part of Visa's business works is where they actually take a percent of the money flowing through their systems, right? right? Which is the platform economics, right? So um, that's how you get all these rewards. So when you get like cash back or uh, travel points and these kinds of things, that's because Visa is charging the merchant and that that's a sliding scale, but let's just call it 2% that they're charging the merchant. And then you get some of those some of that two percent back to the consumer as a reward or cash back or something, and and Visa's basically taking uh, the difference. The banks get a little bit because the the banks are also backstopping it. But net net, what you can take away from that is that Visa's getting not just a SaaS fee, right? Which is hey, I'm signing up, I get the software, and there's a fee associated with that. Visa's getting. Uh, a percent of the throughput going through its pipes so when visa releases its earnings they talk about how much dollars have been transacted through Visa's systems right gmv for them basically that's essentially gross, gross sales GMV. gross merchandise volume exactly and that is the platform dynamic which we're talking which visa has that's why visa and mastercard and mx are all in plat um but you do not hear Plaid talking about total amount of throughput. Uh, there's, a, there's a revenue approximation in here. right? So there's when, a number of clients in here. The way here. they make money,
1: basically, I think when they sign up users, uh, these developers will pay them a fee. So when you give access to the bank account. Yeah. But they also make a little bit of money, basically, every time you access that bank account. It's like a like paper API kind API of thing. API calls. Right. right. With, which to if they're not they're not capturing a percentage of money transferred via plaid when they connect someone, they're basically you know, not to be pejoratively, but like the dumb pipes. Yep. They're the they're the connection. They're not actually, they don't have the market power to take a percentage because they don't really have a network effect
0: there. No, no, no. And so this is this is exactly what I asked the co-founders two and a half years ago. I said, hey guys, why don't you want to not be a pipe? Why don't you want to become a lending marketplace? Mm -hmm. Why don't you wanna let people why don't you wanna say, Create a marketplace (laughs) for these mcas to actually now you know lend to uh, small business right you want to kind of go the next step and try and spin off marketplaces on top of these pipes and they said nope we don't want to do that we want to be the honestly i i would even probably say they would call themselves dumb pipes and have no problem calling themselves dumb they might have even called themselves dumb pipes two and and a half years ago they're not threatening to banks there's right they're not threatening to a bank they just want to be the dump pipes that power the system. And they're happy with that. And look, the founders are doing very fine. Right. fine you can make a lot of money. money being exactly. the dump pipes. They can make a lot of money being the dump pipes because they have the best pipes out there and the biggest pipes, at least in the United States. And that's worth $5.3 billion. Um, and Visa will probably make uh, and increase the, the value of that given their scale and reach and the ability to accelerate this business. So, and we'll see if InvestNet gets acquired as a result. As you were saying with Yodley, having a strong presence in the US but probably a stronger presence relative to plaid internationally. Um so, interesting stuff. Now, what what these other what these credit card companies are also missing, which is a platform dynamic is what's happening with Amazon Go. And so if you want to talk about another payment vertical, retail, a huge driver for credit card companies and what is happening with retail? I mean, we're at 27th and Park in New York City. I'm not in California. For those of you on TikTok that just say that I'm in California and I'm the reason that AB5 is in effect, that's not true. I'm not in California. Um I'm in New York, which isn't much better, but anyway, no, I'm not there. Amazon Go has opened 3 blocks away from us on 24th and Park. Yep. And um as we've as as we've spoken about previously on the show, we expect Amazon to open up or they're actively pursuing other retailers and pursuing license arrangements with the retailers yep. to say, Hey, um, why don't you take our technology, use our systems, create a cashier list, ca- you know, a no checkout lane experience in your store because consumers prefer it. And there's plenty of data to support that they're opening, opening hundreds and hundreds of stores Not only is it more preferred by the consumer, A, B, it actually optimizes the square footage much more in the store, um, which can be sometimes 10%, sometimes more in terms of just checkout lanes and and checkout machines. Not to mention human capital costs. And people to staff those machines, exactly. So it changes the economics of the layout of the store and the economics to man the machines. C... It also lowers your lossage and theft rates in the store because, hey, I took this thing off the shelf. The camera knows you took it. And so the other thing for grocery stores, for example, is that they have about 3% of lossage in their P&L, which could be theft, but it could also just be hey, I took it off the shelf and I put it on another shelf. I didn't put it back where I got it. And the, and the, and the thing is a perishable, you know, it's produce and it goes bad and I got to right. throw it out now.
1: Because no one bought it when it was in you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the no shampoo one f- aisle.
0: Right. <laughs> so 3%, by the way, for a grocery store uh, already on razor thin margins is a very big deal. So um, it, I, Amazon Go, as we've spoken about, fundamentally changes the economics of retail. Not, not, not to mention giving a great uh 10x experience to the consumer faster you know you're in a grocery store in new york city you want to see the the size and time it takes to go through those checkout lines uh it can be like 20 30 minutes it's ridiculous yeah, even you've in, been Whole Foods,
1: a, in a you know, trader joe's or any kind of very popular grocery store in new york the lines can wrap around the store
0: yeah they literally have someone with a sign saying hey the line starts you know at the, at the back end of the store come over here so anyway um what needs to be created is a is an anti-Amazon Go alliance. This is just a sampling of a handful of tech companies that are building technology to be able to track what you're doing in a store, what items you're taking off a the shelf. There's actually a number more. This is actually probably six months old research. There's actually a number more now. Some of these numbers have even gotten even bigger. Uh, Maybe we'll bring one of these founders on the show to talk to us about what they're doing. But there is an ample amount of tech startups out there building technology, maybe not as advanced as Amazon go, but not too far off uh, from what Amazon's been able to develop. It's not like it's not like Amazon had some kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, multi, multi year head start. I mean, maybe they had some cameras in their warehouses, but the cameras weren't being trained to say, What did you take off the shelf or these kinds of things um, in the same way that you would have in a, in a consumer retail experience. And so, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of OCR image recognition technology. It's like I'm going through Delta um, to get on the plane and they're scanning my face, you know, this technology, you can develop this technology. And and that's what these startups are doing. Some have raised over a hundred million dollars. Yep. So this is what the open handset Alliance looks like for Android. Uh, this is a little dated in terms of all the players, but the point is you need an ecosystem approach, right? Uh, in order to do this. So if a MasterCard, a Visa, an Amex acquires one of the leading technology players with the image recognition, with the ability to say, hey, Alex, just pick this thing off the shelf. Let's add it to his cart and provide that technology then what you can do is you can build the other partners around this. right? And I think that's what also Visa will bring to the table with Plaid is they can bring their network and their right. partners to the table. But you need partners that can integrate into the inventory management system that retailers have in the store. Into- you, know, you need sensors and hardware. And if I'm Visa or MasterCard, I'm not a
1: hardware company and I'm probably not gonna become one anytime soon. The same way, you know, if you have point of sale terminals, you have companies that can provide this technology and do it better. Uh, you basically want to build an ecosystem of these guys so that you can get your technology mm-hmm. uh, and software into these stores to be facilitating this cashier. Accounting
0: first. systems and payment systems and cash systems and, you know, all these kinds of things that that um, a Visa, MasterCard, Amex, all platform companies and plat all have the ability to pull these kinds of partner relationships together. But but someone needs to take the first step. Um, make the investment that's needed, show that they want to, that they're committed to, to building this ecosystem. And then what you can do is actually start to uh, bring retailers along for the ride. Many, 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 many retailers need an alternative, alternative to Amazon go literally. It's the last thing in the world that a retailer has in terms of data that Amazon doesn't have it, The is- physical store space. Right. What are people buying in my actual store? It's, it's literally the last treasure trove of information that Amazon doesn't have. And they're starting to get it through Amazon Go. Right. But for other verticals that Amazon Go doesn't want to go create their own store in, which there's actually a lot. Yep. They want to go license the technology. But now if you're a retailer in that industry and you just say, I mean, come on. The last thing you want to do on the planet, probably on the planet next to, some tragic loss of life, or something is 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 go and work with it and bring Amazon into your actual retail it's, it's store. It's probably up there with bungee jumping without a rope, <laughs> right? Or or that like uh, who's that tight walk uh, walker tightrope walker who's yeah. going to do it over an active volcano? Maybe that would be up there as well. Um,
1: yeah, or you go really, work you, with Amazon right. into your retail you really store. You don't want to let Amazon in. You don't want them getting a data and the way Amazon wants to structure this. They want to cut of the transaction the same yeah. way you typically would for a payment provider that right. owns the network. If Amazon owns this network, you're going to be given a percent of that and they're going to be making a lot of money,
0: a lot of money. Oh, and you can bet that, that, uh, you know, the, the Visa, MasterCard, Amex share in that, even if I am paying with, with one of their credit cards through my Amazon account, right. That once Amazon gets market power, they're going to have lever- plenty of leverage over that. that so sweat fees are going down. Yeah. It's a, it's a real problem. No one has taken decisive action in the space. This, to me, is a, a no-brainer that 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 absolutely has to be done. Um, we'll see who wants to take that first leap. So, let's see. We had a, we had a fun tweet from our um, buddy Modest Proposal. I love his comment. Oh, so oh yo, is a platform company in the hospitality space in mm-hmm. India. Yeah. Yep. Um, Got some big soft bank money, big soft bank money. And now what it says here, um, they are in full retreat in India alone. I mean, they're in other parts of Southeast Asia. OYO has lost more than 65,000 rooms or about a quarter of what it had offered to travelers uh, previously. And this is just since October, this past few months. Uh, They've stopped selling rooms in more than 200 small Indian cities. They're laying off um, many employees and slashing a bunch of costs. Now, this is a platform company. It's kind of like Expedia, Booking.com booking. yeah. of of India, Southeast Asia. You know, what went wrong here?
1: They, they've been struggling with those two sides, but one is kind of fraud and people putting up either fake inventory. Or low quality inventory and then kind of misrepresenting that. So people, you know, I show up and I think I'm going to get a nice room and I'm staying in a hotel and it turns to be, you know, like a little shack. People have posted stories about this kind of thing happening. The other issue that they've been having, which is why that part of also why that number is shrinking in addition to getting rid of bad quality inventory, is they've been uh, basically like withholding payments and accusations that they're not paying on time for a lot of these customers, uh, these uh, you know uh hotels and small kind of providers. And... Losing folks because they're not paying them, basically. So there's a lot of uh, shenanigans, to put it lightly, going on there that has led to them basically retrenching. Um, And they also laid off a bunch of employees. So they're not doing very well financially, which might have something to do with the payments issues. Uh, So, yeah, there's definitely some trouble. I just don't know how you
0: burn through. I mean, they raised $1.5 billion a year ago. Yep. I just don't know how you burn through that much money. I mean, that's impressive. <laughs> Go ask Adam from WeWork. <laughs> no, but this is India.
1: <laughs> I know. this yeah, is The customer acquisition cost isn't quite the same. They're not buying a
0: bunch of physical retail. It's uh, Having $100 million yeah. in India is easily like being a billionaire in India. Maybe even having a few billion dollars in India, just in terms of the power. Purchasing power. Of purchasing power of the dollar in these parts of the world. I mean, so $1.5 billion, it's a staggering amount of money. They'd raise $3.2 billion in aggregate. I mean, I'm sure they're not about to go belly up and they've got runway right. and this is a prudent decision to get they've, out in front of it. They've
1: expanded too far too fast and it seems like they're retrenching. Yes. They've got to get their operations in order yes. and not just be like growth at all costs. Let's get into every city. You've actually got to build your network in a way that makes yes. economic in sense. A,
0: in a sustainable and 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 keep the quality right. at scale, which is hard to do. Yep. We've seen Airbnb come out with... Uh, more restraints to keep su- uh, quality supply strong yep. more checks on hosts uh, and some more checks on on renters uh, consumers but um yeah it's difficult to scale that fast that aggressively it was definitely fueled by soft bank money i don't think this company is the same degree of fall off in the sense that this is this is actually a platform company that was raising money Probably had inflated multiples, but it, it was actually, it actually was what it was reporting itself to be, which was a platform company. Whereas WeWork was raising, I don't know if they had platform multiples, they almost. Had, they had, they tech had certainly multiples
1: as a real estate company, basically. They didn't have,
0: right. they didn't, ha- they had SaaS multiples. They didn't have plaid SaaS multiples. Uh, everyone wants plaid SaaS multiples, but they had certainly SaaS multiples right. for real estate, uh, you know, renting desks. Business right. and they which, were trying to sell themselves as a you know a software and tech right. company. On top of that, they were just burning through money, and then and then now you take a literally a ninety percent haircut um, on your valuation, and you need more money, and that presents a pretty big problem. Right. So it,
1: it, it's diff- not quite WeWork, but it's another case where basically just pouring capital into something doesn't necessarily help you build a sustainable business model. Yep. Uh, and you know even at a platform where there's value to being first and having a big network. You've got to do it in a way that's sustainable, and you know, the union economics makes sense. If you just pour incentives into uh, you know the system to get more customers and more hosts on, you're gonna get a you're gonna dilute the quality, uh, and it's not gonna work long term.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's look at this. Um, this is actually this was a couple of weeks ago. EU competition chief. This is this is Miss Vestager. We've spoken about Miss Vestager many times. Uh, struggles to tame. Quote, the dark side of big tech despite record fines. Okay. I don't know how she has the gall to call these companies the dark side. Well, I think
1: the the gist of what she's saying here is that what they've done isn't working and it hasn't created any effective change in the market power and dominance of these companies. She's basically (laughs) like,
0: well, they're entrenched monopolies. We find them, but it didn't really do anything. She's, this is a hoot. I mean, you got to read- some of this stuff. Oh God! So when they when they uh, when they they find Android, we've covered this in 2017, like two or 2.7 billion dollars for forcing people to use Google apps when you had an Android phone. Um, so in particular, Google Chrome as your browser. Oh, who got in trouble for that? Microsoft. 20 years before. So, and we've spoken about that that this was the right way to focus. Regulation, which was that when you restrict the supply side, when you constrain the supply side, um, that is where platforms can get into trouble. And that's an appropriate area for government to come in. Now, she's grumpy because what Google did is they introduced a preference menu, which offers users a choice of different browsers. And then they were also letting other competitive browsers pay for what position. Right um treated they it like an auction basically yes like if they like they do a google ads Ad Ad, right which it kind of is but she did not like this one of the very impressive competencies of google as a company is their competence of making people make choices um asked if she meant that google would drive users towards its own products she replied this is why it'll be very interesting to see how will such a menu of different options how would that actually work? You know, their biggest gripe is that they're not able to, you know, put Google up on a stake and nail them to the stake, draw blood, fine them, win the fines, get the billions of dollars. I think they want more money out of these companies. I don't think, I think that's how she's evaluated. I think her success is pretty much purely evaluated on how much money she wrings out of these companies. Well, I think what she's saying here is a little bit more than that, which is basically the fines, sure,
1: they, they hurt in the sense that billions of dollars is never not going to be noticed, but you're not actually seeing these companies change their behavior in a meaningful way that makes you think they're afraid of more fines. They're, they're uh, complying with the rules in a minimal sense and not from her point of view, I would say the spirit of the rules. Uh, so that they're figuring ways around these, and basically, uh, you know, what is it like? Come at me, bro, uh, is kind of their attitude.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I just think she's. I think she's naive. I don't think she really understands. I don't think she's really taken. Again, what we talk about on the show to heart in the sense that you got to look at the supply side of things, right? So well, you've
1: got to look at the way they look, and you've seen this and all the things they put out on looking at the supply side. They also look at the supply side through the lens of impact on. And customers yeah they're not looking at the supply side as a customer group yes and the impact on the supply side directly as important because basically if you look at a platform two customer groups consumers producers the producers are a customer group they're looking at through the traditional linear lens the same way they would a walmart for example and saying oh is walmart's abusing their suppliers does that affect the prices and choices that end customers have which is the wrong way to look at this it's producers are a customer group what they're doing directly impacts the prices they charge producers, which they're gouging in many places. Uh, and we need to attack that directly, not you know
0: indirectly, because it affects consumers. Yeah, I know they keep trying to go back to the consumer. They they're like literally looking at the opportunity and the pain point right in the face, and then they say, "Oh yeah, yeah, you you restrict supply." Oh, but let me go back to the consumer. They just can't get away from the consumer. Right. She can't appreciate the role that suppliers are customers. And that's all you gotta do. Don't worry about the consumer. And you know what? The consumer is not harmed. I think that's the thing that she's like- right. That's why none of these really things really stick in her at side. the end of the day. Yeah, it's, the consumer doesn't care, Miss Fessinger. You wanna know who cares? The suppliers. It's the other search browsers that now have a shot. It's the other apps and websites that Google is continuously cramming down, forcing more ads, putting their own results above them on search. Why don't you look at that? Oh, no. You know, because they need to look at the consumer. And then they give her another job. I mean, this you can't make this up. So in addition to policing competition, Ms. Vestager has been given a new role as European Commission, wait for it, Executive Vice President for Digital with a mission to boost technology in the region. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're asking the lady that's supposed to destroy the big tech monopolies to figure out how to go promote new technologies in the region. This is the lady who created GDPR, which is such a downer in terms of uh, promoting competition in the region.
1: Right. It that, actually, that is our next it article. It actually entrenched Google and Facebook because they complied easily. Lots of other businesses couldn't and died. And also, by the way, a lot of what it does like affect what you can do with cookies and that kind of stuff where people are tracking third party tracking services basically across the web. Yep. But that's not a big issue for Google and Facebook because their main source of yep. serving ads is the stuff you do on Google or on Facebook, yeah. which now nobody else can get access to. Yep.
0: We've said it before. Google and Facebook should be kissing the feet of Miss Vestager because right. she's actually, you know, handed them uh, basically the keys to the kingdom for digital advertising in Europe. And this article, this was just this week. Google enhances privacy and perhaps itself <laughs> at the same time. It basically is saying that GDPR and privacy regulation helps large tech monopolies. It's almost as if they've been listening to our show, Nick. You know, they, maybe they like it so much they figured they'd do a little more themselves. <laughs> maybe, uh, yeah. Now they're leading the charge on privacy, um, and not letting, uh, and and I guess Apple too. You know, not letting uh, the FBI get access to. These iPhones, which we're gonna to cover tomorrow. Um and, uh, and and go more into that. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's um it's so predictable this stuff. But you'd think the people in charge who get paid I don't know, I wonder what Miss Vestiger's salary is. How much do you make? Uh any any guesses? I wonder what, what her uh maybe I'll find it and we'll come back tomorrow. With what her salary is, I guess. I guess three million bucks. That's my guess. That feels high. Oh, I don't know. We'll I, think, see. I think you
1: overestimate the salaries of uh, European elected officials.
0: Oh, I hope I am. <laughs> I hope but, I am.
1: But I think the point what is do you guess? that uh,
0: I would guess. 400,000 euros. OK, OK, that's the range. OK, w- we will see. It's like Nick's faith in the government and then my faith in the government. So let's see where. uh... Well, I think you can make the argument that even if it
1: were 400,000, the person who is in that role should probably make a lot more than that because the people they're regulating make billions of dollars and that would help you attract the right talent to actually do it, which is another challenge you've run into in other industries like financial regulation where you make a heck of a lot more money in the industry than regulating and you have this revolving door kind of issue that comes up there.
0: So, so there. So you're saying she's she's actually not that good because we should get someone that's paid more. I'm,
1: I'm not gonna, gonna find the salary. I'm not gonna go that far, but
0: I am saying the kind
1: of talent and people that understand this stuff on a deep issue, the kind of people that actually understand platforms,
0: probably aren't taking that job for four hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> right. So let's we will see. Oh, 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 oh! I I got it. But we're gonna talk about it tomorrow. Okay, that'll be on tomorrow's show, and we're gonna talk about how. um the Trump administration and the FBI have it wrong with trying to get Apple to unlock these iPhones. Uh, and so, more on that tomorrow. Thanks for joining us, Sam Winter Take All.